Well, we're going to be going into our time of teaching right now. If you're brand new, you may not know this, but inside our, your program is a green and white message note sheet we use every week. Uh, if you're a regular, you'll know that, but if you're new, you may not. So you want to pull that out. That'll definitely help you follow along. And if you're all ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Yes. Okay, let's pray. God, we're just hungry for you. Well, we think of your word that says, uh, when Jesus, you said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after what is right, because they will be filled. And God, we want to be those people that hunger and thirst after what is right and true and good. We want to be transformed. We want to become like you. We want to become the people we're created to be. And so we just pray that today, we pray your Holy Spirit would fill this place. We pray that we would be listening to his voice. I pray that he would empower me to be clear and on target. I pray that he would enable all of us to have ears to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church. And we pray that as always, that once we hear, we would listen and follow and respond to the light that we've been given so that we might receive more light. And we pray this in your name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Well, he's laying here late at night, and, and frankly, he's having a hard time going to sleep. It was about an hour ago that everyone said goodnight, turned off the lights. But he's in his room alone and thinking about what's going to happen the next day. And frankly, he has mixed emotions all over the map. Uh, one part of him, he can't wait. He can't wait to be kind of reconciled. He's been looking forward to this reunion for a long time. Um, but on the other, the other side of him, he's, he's full of apprehension and for some good reason. I mean, their relationship over the years has been hot and cold. It's been up and down. It's been a relationship with incredible mountaintops and and really low valleys. Like the last time that they were together, it ended poorly. There was a lot of conflict, there were tears, and, and when they left and departed, things were not good. So over the distance and since that time, they've worked hard to reconcile, and there are signs that, hopeful signs, that things may go well tomorrow. But on the other hand, he can't get over the, the fear at the back of his mind that some of the issues are truly not resolved, and this could blow up and be an end to their relationship. And so as he lays there late at night, everyone is asleep. It's quiet outside except for the distant sounds of some bugs of the night. He's trying desperately just to turn his mind off and go to sleep, but he's finding it hard because it keeps on going to tomorrow. Well, today we are continuing this series that we've been in for the last five or six weeks that's called Metamorphosis, Transformed by Truth. And if you're new here, a special welcome uh, just a brief synopsis, uh, I like to describe this series as like the third season in a longer-running drama called Metamorphosis. And the longer series, Metamorphosis, is a series based on a letter from one of the most prolific writers in the New Testament, the second part of our Bible. His name is Paul, or we call him the Apostle Paul. And he's writing to a group of Jesus followers, many of whom he had led to the Lord in a major metropolitan city in the southern tip of what we call now modern-day Greece. And uh, he had led many of these people to the Lord. Um, and the name of the city was Corinth. And so we call this letter Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And in this third and final series of this letter, uh, Paul is facing a new challenge. Some new teachers have come into Corinth while he's been away. They're very gifted. They're very sophisticated. They're making huge claims about themselves. And and the church is being drawn to them. But the problem is, is that they're introducing a new message, a dangerous message, a message that they kind of introduces what, what Paul describes as a different Jesus, a different spirit, a different 
gospel. And the problem is they're, they're buying in. They're lacking discernment. And these new teachers are promoting themselves and doing all they can to tear down Paul and his authority. They want to steal the church away. So the question is, how can Paul prevent them from going over the waterfall, going over the, off the deep end and being sucked in by these new teachers? And so as we've watched the last couple of weeks, he's entered into a section of the letter where he does what he feels like it's ridiculous to do, foolish, but he doesn't know what else to do. He begins comparing his, his resume with their resume. And, uh, and like I said, it, it feels completely ridiculous. In fact, scholars call this whole section of the letter Paul's fool's speech because he continually talks about how foolish it is, but he doesn't know what else to do. And so if you've been here the last couple of weeks, we've, we've kind of gone through this fool's speech, and today we're transitioning into this new section of the letter where he's preparing them for his third visit. Now, if you've been with us throughout this series, you know this, that Paul first went to Corinth in the year 50 AD, which is about five, six years ago. And uh, he had shared Jesus. They had come to Christ. He had stayed there for 18 months, which at that point in his life is the longest he'd ever stayed with a new church. And then after he left, he's been away for several years, but about a year ago, within the last year, there's been a major crisis going on in the church where a rogue leader has risen up and is kind of taking the church uh, in the wrong direction. So Paul made an emergency visit back. We studied this back in chapter 2 and chapter 7. And uh, when he got there, it was a very painful visit. That was his second visit. It did not go well. Uh, And he chose not to confront this rogue leader. He felt like the church was too divided. It would break the church apart. So he's ready now This to to go the third time, the the third visit. And he's he's writing this letter to prepare them for that visit. And as we're going to see, he's very apprehensive about how this visit is going to go. So if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's open up, turn on, there in your notes, you have a section called Metamorphosis, the third visit. We're going to pick it up where we left off last time at chapter 12 in verse 11. So he's just finished this fool speech where he's comparing his credentials with their credentials. He feels ridiculous doing it. And so he says in verse 11, I've made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I love that, you know. I've been a fool, but it's your fault. And he said, the reality is I ought to have been commended by you. Like these new teachers that are coming in and tearing him down, the the reality is they should have been defending Paul as their apostle. He says, because I'm not in the least inferior to the super apostles. And so we we talked about this term super apostles a couple weeks ago. And so we're not sure exactly what he's referring to. He may be referring to these new leaders that are coming in and making huge claims. And he's sarcastically referring to him as the super apostles. Uh, But it may be that these new teachers are coming in are not just making great claims for themselves, but they're saying, hey, you shouldn't trust Paul. He's not one of the original real apostles of Jesus that Jesus chose, uh, kind of the super apostles. And so you need to be following us because we're telling you the truth, not Paul. So we're not sure which one, it, which one he's referring to, but the bottom line is clearly saying that, hey, I'm, I'm an apostle of Jesus. I'm not an inferior to any of the other apostles. But then he's quick to say, even though I am what? Nothing. And so Paul says, it's not about me. It's about what Jesus has called me to do and to be. And he, he says, you know, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle. So one of the marks of a true apostle of Jesus is they had supernatural power to heal the sick, uh, to do supernatural uh, signs, wonders. And Paul had been with them those 18 months. They had seen him really serve them well, love them well, but also do these supernatural signs which authenticate his calling and his identity. And so he says in uh, verse 12, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles, right? Now he's going to address this other issue that is kind of a big issue in Corinth. We've talked about it earlier in chapter 11, but it's this issue of financial support. So you may remember this from a couple weeks ago. It was a big issue to them. Yes, it keeps on coming up. But uh, Paul made the decision early in his ministry life not to receive financial support from a church that he started while he was there. Now, he was willing to take support, like when he would go off to share the gospel in new areas, he was willing to be supported um, because they would be helping him advance the gospel. But he just felt like it'd be more effective if money wasn't involved, there was no question about his intentions. 
And so um, the Corinthians com- continue to misunderstand this. They took this as a personal affront, like what, you don't love us, you won't receive, our money's no good. Um, they would watch Paul get money packages from other churches supporting him in Corinth. And it's like, what, are we less a church? We're an inferior church to them. You'll take it from them, but not us. There were even some that were saying, hey, Paul makes a big deal that he doesn't take offerings. He's, he's not financially supported. But we all know he sent his co-workers, Titus and others, to collect money for this initiative for the poor. How do we know he's not ripping us off and just using that money? So there was all this money issues that were getting in the way, and he has to keep coming back, and we're going to watch him uh, kind of diffuse that again here. And that's what he's, he's, he's referring to in verse 13, where he says, how were you inferior to other churches? Words, how did I treat you uh, less important, except that I was never a burden to you? I didn't charge you. And he, said, and he says, ironically, forgive me for this wrong. And he says, so now I'm ready to visit you for the third time. And uh, he said, I want them to know that this, I'm not changing my financial policy. I will not be a burden to you because what I want is not your possessions. I want you. After all, children, thinking of young children, should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Paul sees himself as their spiritual father. He says, I want to give for you, not vice versa. He said, so I will very gladly spend for you everything I have, and I'll expend myself is as well. He says, now, if I love you more, if I serve you without financial support because I love you so much, he said, if I love you more, will you love me uh, less? But be that as it may, I have not been a financial burden to you. He says, yet, crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. So now he's talking about this claim of using his co-workers to get money and skimming off the top. He said, did I exploit you through any of the men that I sent to you? I urged Titus to go to you. I sent our brother with him. Remember, he's collecting that initiative for the poor. He says, Titus did not exploit you, did he? Didn't we walk in the same footsteps by the same spirit? We follow the same policy. And then he says, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? So throughout this book, we've seen this time and time again. Paul is forced to defend himself, defend his calling as an apostle, defend his integrity, defend his gifts. Defend, we've seen it. And over and over again, if you've been here throughout this series, I've told you this, he's defending himself not because it's his own ego or power or position, but he's an apostle of Jesus. He's been sent with the truth. If they reject him as their apostle and reject the message, they're going off the deep end. And so he's forced to defend himself, not for, him, for, for himself, but for them. And so he finally comes out and says this. He says, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? He said, we've been speaking in the sight of God, like honestly, as those in Christ. In everything we do, dear friends, it's for your strengthening. And now he says, for I'm afraid that when I come, this third visit, I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, walking with Jesus, and that you may not find me as you want me to be. I will not be happy. And so this takes us back to the story that we started the day with. We started the day with a story of a man who can't sleep at night. It's late at night. Everyone's in bed. Everyone else is asleep. You see the bugs going outside. And he's tossing and turning. This is a story from the life of Paul as I envision him traveling back to Corinth. And the very next day, he's going to have this reunion. He's really looking forward to it, but a lot of apprehension, not sure what he's going to find. And so if you remember his history... Uh, that he, on his second visit there, that emergency visit, that painful visit, remember that he had left them, uh, that when this rogue leader rose up, he chose not to confront it head on because he was afraid the church would split. So he left. It was very humiliating for him. Uh, It was a very painful trip because he was so blown away by their sin and rebellion. He had so much grief. They interpreted that as weakness and so the second trip, remember, was very painful. And after he left, he wrote him this letter from Ephesus, and he challenged them. And you remember in chapter 7, we learned that and Titus delivered that letter. They truly felt bad. They turned around, repented. They removed the rogue leader, and they really want to be reconciled with Paul. That was chapter 7. But as we've seen in chapters 10, 11, and 12, there's still now these new leaders have come in. They're not sure if they're going to follow Paul or not. So Paul is really apprehensive about what he's going to find. And on top of that, what we're going to about to learn is that the church of Corinth is still a mess. 
You know, if you've ever read the book of 1 Corinthians, you know that this is one of those churches that's up for nomination as the worst church in the New Testament, right? <laughs> like if it was the Emmys, it'd be one of the top three, you know, up for that award, right? like This church was a screwed up church because they, they, were, they were thinking more like their culture than like Christ. We've seen it all the way through. So let, let me give you an example. Like, without doing a full-blown story of First, uh, First Corinthians study, let me just kind of walk you through First Corinthians. The first three chapters, Paul is challenging them because they're full of divisions, because they're full of pride, and they're dividing over which leader they like best, which teacher they like. It'd be like here if someone was like, oh, I'm a follower of Pastor Michael, or I'm a follower of Pastor Dre, and, and like, uh, well, I know we have that a little bit, but, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, uh, it's like they were dividing over leaders because of their pride and their arrogance. They wanted to be, I'm on the winning team, right? And so in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, Paul said, I couldn't write to you as spiritual uh, men and women, but as spiritual babies. He said, because while there's this jealousy and all this envy going on, aren't you acting just like, like mere men, like non-believers? And so then we move into chapter 4, and he, he just, he, uh, end of 3 and 4, he says, listen, Hey, if you want to be truly wise in, the, in Christ, you have to become a fool in the world. Like, you can't buy into the world's way of thinking. And then when he gets into chapter 5, he said, hey, what's going on in your church? It's like, I hear there's sexual immorality going on, and you're not even dealing with it. You're not even holding each other accountable. And then you get to chapter 6, the conflict is so bad that some of you are taking each other to court instead of resolving it amongst yourself. And in chapter 7, they're messed up in their thoughts about marriage and sex, and they'll mess up. And in chapters 8 through 10, some of them are still going to pagan feasts and participating in idolatrous thing, and in chapters 12 and 13 and 14, they're dealing with spiritual gifts and who has the best gift and dividing over that, and you get to chapter 15, and they're, they're, they're messed up over, some of them are believing there's not really a resurrection, and Paul says, what are you thinking? This is the core gospel? I mean, this is a legitimately messed up church, like seriously messed up, and when you get to 2 Corinthians, you, you, like we don't have all those issues going on. And you think like, oh, maybe they got their act together. Paul wrote to them 12, 18 months ago. They got their act together. But what we're about to find in chapter 12 is, no, that's not the case. What's the case is they're so screwed up, they didn't listen to that letter. And so as a result of that, they're in more serious danger than before. And they're, they're not just like some questioning the resurrection. They're all considering a different gospel, a different Jesus. Like they're more messed up than before. And what we've seen in 2 Corinthians is this issue of authority and apostleship is so huge and so dangerous, Paul has had to zoom in on that. For example, let's say that you had a student, uh, a high school student or a college student in your house, you know, your son or daughter, and they're addicted to heroin. Now, there's all kinds of issues going on, right? There's all kinds of issues. They might be robbing to support their habit. They might be lying and stealing and sleeping around and concerned with AIDS. There's all kinds of things. But when you look at that son or daughter, the number one thing, you just have to get them off heroin. Like, there's not time to talk about your language in the house or you're not picking up your clothes. I mean, like, we cannot, we have to focus on this issue because this is life or death. And if we don't get you off heroin, nothing else matters. That's the book of 2 Corinthians. There's all these other issues that are going on and we haven't even heard of them until chapter 12 because this other issue of apostleship and authority is so huge Paul has had to fight for his life at every page to keep them from going over the falls. But when we get into chapter 12, all of a sudden, it's like that we've been zooming in on them. All of a sudden, you go back, like a wide-angle shot, and you see their church is just as messed up as it's always been, perhaps more. And so when we, Paul is so concerned as he's ready to, to go to them, what he's going to find. And so he says in verse, uh, verse uh, 20, I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. And he says, and here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid, now think of this in terms of 1 Corinthians, where I just described the issues that he's written to them 12, 18 months before. I fear that I may find discord and jealousy and fits of rage and selfish ambition and slander and gossip and arrogance and disorder. This is 1 Corinthians all over again. And then he keeps going. It gets worse. 
I'm afraid that when I come again, he had to take a breath there. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me again. Again, I'll be reduced to tears. And he said, and I will be grieved over many, notice that, not a few, many who have sinned earlier on his second visit and have still not repented of their impurity, their sexual sin, their debauchery in which they've indulged. Now, up to this point, we've not heard anything about sexual sin, about discord, about uh, rage, about, we haven't heard about that. It's because, it's not that it's not there, it's because this other issue is so important. And so Paul's going to say, hey, I'm about to come the third time. And remember what we learned early in this series, because Paul, the second time there, had not directly confronted this rogue leader and all this sin going on, but had chosen to withdraw in, in humility just because he thought it would blow the church up, remember that many saw him as weak. And there were many that had mistaken his humility for weakness. And one of the criticisms, hey, I don't think Paul's really an apostle, because look how weakly he dealt with this. If he was really led by the Spirit, that he would have come in and lowered the boom. Where's the power of Jesus? And so Paul says, hey, you misunderstand. He says, I'm coming for the third time. He said, now, in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, there's a principle. And it's a judicial principle. And it goes like this, that when you bring some up on charges in Israel, you have to have more than one witness. You can't, you can't prosecute just on one witness. You have to have two or three witnesses. So Paul says, hey, I'm like the judge. I'm coming the third time. I warned you last time. I'm warning you now. You've had two warnings, and it's my third visit. And so I'm coming like the judge, and this time I will not spare you. This time, I'm holding you. If this is what I find, I'm holding you accountable. You want to see the power of Jesus in me? (laughs) You will discover the power of Jesus this time. Now, just catch this. Paul doesn't want to bring the power of Jesus. He wants him to repent so that it's a joyful reunion. But he's warning them, don't mistake my weakness, my humility for weakness. Because I'm coming in the name of Jesus, and Jesus is not weak among you. He is strong. Sure, there was a time when he was crucified through weakness, but then he rose by the power of God. And that's where he lives today, in the power of God. He said, in our lives, of course, as I've been saying all through this letter, we go through times of weakness, we're beat, we're thrown in prison, but we also live by the power of God. And if you want to see the power, then I'll bring the power. And so he says in chapter 13, verse 1, he says, this will be my third visit to you. And he quotes Deuteronomy 19. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. That was your first warning. I now repeat it while I'm absent. This is your second warning. And on my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. Since you're demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, look, he is not weak in dealing with you. He's powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by God's power, power of the resurrection. Likewise, we are weak in him, yes, but by God's power, we live with him in our dealing with you. And then he gives him a final challenge. He says, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. This whole book, they've been examining Paul. Are you really an apostle? He says, hey, it's time to stop examining me. It's time to start examining yourself. Are you really a follower of Jesus? Does Jesus live in you? And it's interesting because in the Greek, there's a way of asking a question that expects a positive response, a yes response. There's a way of asking the question in a way it expects a negative response. He frames his question in the positive, like he expects a positive, but it's a powerful question where he says, hey, listen, hey, you've been evaluating me. It's time to evaluate yourself. Are you really Christians? Are you really followers of Jesus? Does Jesus live in you? Because it sure doesn't look like it. And if he does, it's time to start acting like it. And so he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves He says, do you not realize, which is way of saying, like, don't you get it? 
do you, do you not realize that, uh, that Christ Jesus is in you? Like you're a follower of Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit. Christ himself dwells in you both individually and as, uh, as a church. Jesus dwells in you. Like who are you? Like who are you? You need to get in touch with who you are and be who you are. He says, do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you what? Fail the test. And he so says, a powerful challenge to a church in trouble. And so what we want to do today is I want to focus, as we're coming towards the end of this series, I want to focus on one big picture truth that, that ties together this, you know, this whole series, this final third season, is about the relationship between truth and transformation. And what we've seen over and over again is that God has a vision for our life. That vision is transformation, but the conduit of that transformation is truth, that we're transformed by truth. Romans 12, do you remember that? Uh, that we would be transformed by a renewing of our minds. But what we're going to see today is one of the most important principles in all the Bible on spiritual growth and transformation and how this relationship between truth and transformation works out. So there on your note sheet, you have a section... It's called Metamorphosis, the Dimmer Switch. And what I, what I share with you today is, in my mind, the most important principle I could ever share with you on the, on the process, the, the, how, how spiritual transformation works. Um, some of you will have heard me talk about this before. It's something I'll bring up. But we're going to go deeper today than we've often gone before. And so I want to start with this big picture principle we're going to take some time unpacking it, even as I'm giving you the blank, fill in the blanks, uh, and then we're going to talk about how it works out in our lives. So let's jump in. So here's how it works. Here's how the dimmer switch principle works, that when we respond to the light, right, so let's talk about that. I'm going to break down each line here for you. When you respond, so as followers of Jesus, or catch us even before you come to Jesus, there are times in our life when the Holy Spirit turns on the light in a new area of our life. Now, it could be in any area. Uh, it could be, for example, in your core relationship with God. It could be that the Holy Spirit begins calling you to spend more time with Him one-on-one -on, -one on a regular basis. This is your next step. That, that could be it. It could be an area of sin. And it might be an area of sin you know is sin, or it could be an area of sin you don't know is sin. But he begins to turn up the light. I like to use the analogy of walking through a house. If you think of our, our lives like a house, that the Holy Spirit, when he, when, he, when he takes over our life, we give ourselves to Jesus, he's going to go through and clean up the house and redesign the house and, and kind of make that house beautiful what it's supposed to be. And so what happens is he's going through our house from time to time. He says, hey, what's in this room? And he opens the door and he turns on the light and we go, whoa. Uh, you know, what's, and, um, and so this is what happens is that the Holy Spirit, he opens our eyes to new truth. He gives us more light. He reveals the truth about our life and who we're to be and, and who we're to become. And so this, this can happen in any area of our life. It could be our relationship with God. It could be a sin. It could be an area of our character. It could be an integrity. It could be a, uh, an area of uh, uh, how we do relationships. It could be our sexuality. It could be our finances. It could be in any area of our life. But the Holy Spirit just opens our eyes. It may be a flash of lightning. We see it. Or it may be the slow dawning of a new day. But he begins to open our eyes to an area of, of, of uh, our life. So, so as the Holy Spirit begins to give us new truth. Are you with me? He begins to give us truth. So, so when we, and so the question is, how do we respond to that? And so when he opens our eyes, that we can then, we need to respond to that truth. He's revealing our next step, and we need to listen and follow what that light is revealing. Okay, so, so when we respond to the light, here's what happens. We say yes to Jesus. I see that. Yes, I see the implications. Yes, I follow. When we respond to the light, we receive more light. Okay, that's what happens, is that as we as he opens our eyes, we say, yes, Lord, we follow. He says, awesome, and he gives us more light. We see the next step in our journey. The next path, the next step gets brighter. But when we reject the light, because we don't like what the light reveals or what the light requires, 
right? All of a sudden, the, the Lord starts opening our eyes. We need, hey, this hatred, this grudge, that you need to let that go. You need to forget what, we don't want to forgive that person. And so we just kind of quickly turn away from the, I don't want to hear that. That when we reject the light, we turn away from the light. So picture the light is here, like on a torsier. When, when we reject the light, we turn away because we don't like what it reveals or what it requires. When we start walking away from that light, what happens? The light gets dimmer. We lose the light we have. Right? And so we change. Now, this principle that uh, how we respond to the light determines whether we get more light or lose the light we have uh, this principle flows throughout the Bible, and we see it in, used, described in different metaphors and images. And I want to give you a couple examples. One of my favorites in the Old Testament is the, the illustration of the hardening of heart. Have, have you heard that, that expression? So like, for example, in Psalm 95, which we'll study in our life groups this week, in Psalm 95, the psalmist says to Israel, he says, today, if you hear his voice, today, if you hear his voice, he says, do not Harden your heart like you did, like the nation of Israel did in the wilderness. When the Don't harden your heart. So what's he talking about? Well, from the biblical image is that God wants our heart to be tender. He wants our heart to be soft. He wants our heart to be sensitive to him so that when he speaks, that, that his word goes in and we, it touches us and we respond to it. He says, but, but when, we, when we reject what the Lord is saying to us, that our heart becomes Heart. It becomes like callous. And when you build up calluses on parts of your body, you just don't feel things. You lose your capacity to feel and respond. And so this Old Testament image is, hey, when God speaks, don't harden your heart, because if you harden your heart, you will lose the capacity. This one I want you to catch. You lose the capacity to hear his voice. And you lose the capacity to care about what he's saying. Right? So that's an Old Testament illustration. A New Testament illustration from the life of Jesus. Jesus is, uses an interesting analogy of a measuring cup. So in ancient days, when you would, you know, when you go to the market, you would often have a measuring cup that you would use to trade goods and services. So you might say, hey, I'll trade you a, a, a measuring cup, a cup of, uh, a cup of wheat for two cups of barley, for example, something like that. And of course, you always use the same measuring cup, so it's fair, right? So it's the right, the right, uh, kind of the right, like if you like, hey, one of mine for two years, yours might be bigger or smaller. So, so the way you do it is you use, so Jesus, uh, Jesus uses this illustration. He says, this is how spiritual truth works. That God measures, gives you a measure of spiritual truth. And he watches what you measure back to him. And if you measure back to him your obedience then he gives you more truth. But if you, if you measure, but you don't uh, respond to that, he's gonna, you're, he's gonna give you the same measure back and you're gonna lose even what you had. And so this is how Jesus puts it in uh, Mark chapter four. He says, uh, consider carefully what you hear. Now let's set the context. In Mark chapter four, he's been teaching the disciples all day long, teaching the crowds and the disciples. They've been sitting at his feet all day, teaching them about the kingdom of God. So amazing teaching, right? This amazing insight. And so Jesus pulls his men aside at the end of the day. He says, hey men, you need to consider carefully what you hear. You need to pay attention. Like what I'm delivering to you is powerful stuff. You need to pay attention and consider carefully how you hear. And he said, why? He says, because with the measure you use, in other words, the way you respond to what you're listening to, it will be measured to you and even more. And then he says, whoever has will be given more, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be what? Taken away. So Jesus says, hey, pay attention to what I'm telling you because my father is watching how you respond and if you respond well to that, he'll give you more. But if you don't respond to this truth, I'm give, you're going to lose even the insight you have. You're going to go backwards. And here's what I want you to catch. This is what's so critical. We often think that we can reject the light that God gives us and stay the same. But the reality is we can't. 
when we reject the light that God gives us, the truth he gives us, we become less of who we were before. We have less insight, less growth, less transformation. We move backwards. So let, let me give you just a practical illustration of how this would work out in a person's life. Now, I just want to get as practical as I can. I'm going to use the illustration uh, for two reasons. One is super clear, and the second one the second reason is that we just talked about this topic in our last series of Metamorphosis, Growing in Generosity. And so, uh, uh, so the example I want to, so I could use an example from any area of life. I could talk about sexuality. We could talk about priorities. We could talk about uh, relationships, your relationship with God. We could talk about areas, so we could use anything, but I'm going to use this topic of finances because we just spent so much time talking, it's very easy to get our hands around and understand and see how it works. So let's go back to that series that we did about five weeks ago, Growing in Generosity. And what we saw is that one of God, part of God's vision for our life is to be transformed, to be like Jesus, that we would be kind of generous givers, that we'd live out a life of love, and that would be reflected in our, our giving, uh, giving for the poor, giving to advance his kingdom. And so we saw that this is his vision. And in that series, we learned that Jesus said that no one can serve two masters. You either love God and you love God and you are not money, or you love money, you don't love God. You cannot serve two masters. It's impossible. It's not just hard, it's impossible. So if we're going to follow Jesus, each of us has to go through a process of decision where we surrender all that we are, all that we have to him. So how we make it, how we spend it, how we give it, how we save it, how we invest it, it all has to come under the leadership of King Jesus. And we talked about this that when we do this, we go to a whole new level of our relationship with Jesus because no longer is money God, Jesus is God. And in that series, I laid out 10 principles about generosity, giving, uh, uh, growing, transformation that we went over in, those th in that three-week series, which was the shortest series on record. Now, uh, so you remember that, uh, so let's say that someone's there, right? Someone's there, they're a follower of Jesus, they've given their life to Jesus, but for whatever reason, they've never really received much teaching on generosity, giving, this is a new thing for them. And so as they're there, the Lord is beginning to turn up the light. The Lord's beginning, like they're beginning to see this and they're beginning to realize, that, hey, I've never really done that. I've never really bowed the knee to Jesus in this area. I've never really said everything I have is yours and come under your leadership. And, and, and the Holy Spirit is showing them this, this truth, how important this is. And on top of that, as the series goes on, the Lord begins to say, here's your next step in your journey of generosity. He begins to put on their heart, here's the amount I want you to start giving on a regular basis to the poor or to advance the kingdom. It might be a percentage, it might be an amount, it's limited, but whatever the Holy Spirit's saying, right? And so the Holy Spirit's showing them this connection between their growth and their transformation and finances, you know, understanding big picture, and he's giving them a specific step. Now the question is, how does that person respond to the light they've been given. So here's one scenario. In one scenario, the person wrestles with that because really surrendering to God in this issue is hard, isn't it? It's not easy. So they, they wrestle with that, but as they're wrestling with that, they, they just really want more of Jesus. They, they, really, they, they realize the truth of it. They realize they need to surrender. And so they get on their knees and they say, Lord, um, I, I want to do this. I, I want to give you my life, all my life, so everything I have, everything I own belongs to you. And from this point on, as you lead me, I will follow. I want to come under your leadership. And, uh, and this is hard. Well, you're asking me to give at this rate, and that's hard. It's a step of faith, and I'm not sure if it's going to work, but, but I want to trust you, and so I'm going to say yes to you. And so they surrender that, and they begin to obey. Can I tell you what's going to happen in that person's life? First of all, their relationship's going to go with Jesus to a whole new level. Because they've surrendered at a heart level. It's not just about the money, it's about the heart. And they've surrendered it. And so now Jesus has more control of their life. And so they're going to begin to experience the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit more. And because they've surrendered this, you know what's going to happen? Materialism is going to have a less of a grip on them. And they're going to become a little bit less greedy and a little bit more generous. And they're going to begin to have a, a deeper sense of purpose and of eternal values in the things that matter. And they're going to begin to experience transformation. And because they've said yes to Jesus on this issue, 
the Holy Spirit's going to continue to give them the next step of their journey of transformation. On the flip side, let's say that someone else is there, same exact process, but they say no. For whatever reason, it just feels like giving up too much control, too hard to do. They don't want to surrender all that they are. And they're not sure if they gave that much, how they would make their bills. And even though God is calling them, they just feel like, I'm not sure that would work. And I don't want to lower my standard of living to increase my standard of giving. I just don't want to do that. And so they, they resist. And they say no. Now here's what I want you to catch. This is very important. Please don't miss this. When we say no, we are often not aware we're saying no. This is the way it works. We're sitting in a message, the Holy Spirit speaking. We're getting nervous. And so the light's coming on, and we, so we start backing up. Huh. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know how that would work out. Not sure. A little scary. I don't know. I don't know. God doesn't require that of everyone. Uh, I don't know people that don't give. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I just need to think some more about it. Uh, yeah, I'm not so sure. I'm not sure what the Lord was saying. Where are you going for lunch? This is how it happens. When God reveals truth and we don't want to hear it, very often we don't just say, no, I won't hear that. We start lying to ourselves, And we start backing away quietly and slowly and rationalizing and arguing and giving reasons until we get so far away from the light. It no longer seems even true. And now we can live with ourselves because we don't want to face the reality we've been disobedient to the Holy Spirit. We can still believe we're living in obedience when the reality is. And you know what happens? This is the really dangerous thing. When we reject the light, it changes us. And what happens, whether we realize it or not, is our heart begins to harden, the light begins to go out, and we don't even realize it. So what happens, let's take two believers that come to Jesus. They both have a dramatic conversion. The first couple years, they're both growing like crazy. They're excited about Jesus. They're excited. Their life is transforming. And then you come back eight years later, and one of them, their life has been so transformed. I mean, their life has been transformed in every way. It's not that life is perfect. I don't mean that. But I mean, it's a, they're like a different person. Their character is different. Their joy is different. They're having effective ministry. Their marriage has been transformed. Their relationships, their finances have been transformed. They're just a different person. And you look at another person that came to Christ at the same time, that started so well, and their life is a mess. It's like their relationships are still screwed up. They're constantly going in and out of bad relationships. They're constantly making bad decisions. They're a complainer. They're negative. Their life isn't transformed. And you say, what happened? How can these two people that started so well, and they say, how, come, well, how did that happen? I can tell you what happened. One listened and when the light came, they kept saying yes. And they kept one room after the next and their life got cleaned up. And their finances got cleaned up and their sexuality got cleaned up and their relationships got cleaned up and their job got cleaned up. And they, and they just room by room, Jesus transformed their life. And this other person, third room in, said no. And as a result, you know what the really sad thing is? This person here now, who's not transformed, when someone comes, new comes to Jesus and their life starts being transformed, they're so excited about Jesus, you know what they say to this new person? Oh yeah, we used to all be like that, but that's a phase, you'll go through it. And you know why they say that? To make themselves feel better. Because their life is so screwed up, they want to normalize it. They want to tear down this person and say, like, you're growing like crazy, but that won't go on. You'll get bored and you'll become like me. They're like the people that are always telling you with your kids, you might be enjoying them now, but wait till next year. It gets horrible. 
Are you with me in this? And this person over here, they honestly believe that their life is normal. And they don't even likely remember when they said no to Jesus. They don't even remember that. And when this is one of the most powerful spiritual principles, I know if I only had one thing to teach you, it'd be this. If you want to be transformed, respond to the light you have. Just one step. You don't have to figure out your whole life. You say, my whole life's messed up. That's great. (laughs) Jesus can work with that, right? He's like an amazing architect, and he knows how to fix your life. And you don't even have to figure out how to fix it. He knows. All you have to do is respond to the light you have today, and he'll give you more light for tomorrow, and he will carry out his plan of transformation in your, your life. So powerful. Now, I think at this point you understand the principle of the dimmer switch, how it works. But the question is, why am I bringing you up here? And I got to tell you, I've been waiting the whole series for this day. Because this is where I wanted to land the plane from day one. But can I tell you something? You weren't ready. You weren't ready yet. You weren't ready until now, until chapter 12, because now as we get into chapter 12, here's what we're going to see. We're finally in a position to understand how the dimmer switch principle worked out in the church of Corinth. Because you've heard their story, right? Come to Christ, powerful conversion, filled with the Holy Spirit, all these spiritual gifts, pastored by the Apostle Paul, shepherded by the Apostle Paul. And when they get off track, and when they're becoming more like their culture than like Christ, he writes an amazing letter of 1 Corinthians to give them incredible light. Here's what you need to do. Well, what we've seen today is that now we're 18 months later, and what we're discovering today is not only have they not listened and followed the light they were given 12 to 18 months ago, but because of that, they're now in worse shape than they were in then. Back then, <laughs> their problems were division, pride, sexual immorality, factions, idolatry. One major doctrinal thing that some help about the resurrection. Now where are they? Divisions, pride, arrogance, selfish ambition, factions, divisions, sexual morality. But those things are so far down the totem pole that Paul can't even talk about them until chapter 12 because they have rejected the truth. And now they're not just questioning like they did in Corinthians chapter 9, is he a real apostle? They're ready to give up their whole faith after a different Jesus. And to the point where Paul has to say to them, are you really even saved? Do you see what's happened? The light came, they didn't respond, and now they're in worse off than they were before. They lost even the light they had. And this is what I don't want to have happen to us. Like, I don't want spiritual growth to be a mystery for us at the church at Rocky Peak. I don't want it to be, like, why do some people grow and other people don't? I don't want that to be a mystery. Like, this is clear. People who grow are people who are hungry to grow. People that when the light comes, they say yes. And because they say yes, God continues to give more light. And with more truth comes more transformation, comes more truth, comes more transformation, comes more truth, comes more transformation, and they can continue to grow and thrive. Have you ever wondered why some grow, they keep getting more, like the rich get richer spiritually? That's what Jesus is saying, the rich get richer. The one who has will get more. The one who has not, why? Because one responds to the truth and one rationalizes their disobedience. So this leads to an important question. And the question's there on your note sheet. Transformed by truth, the big question. And the question is very simple, but it's one I want you to reflect on, not only today, but this week. The question is, how do you respond to the light? (laughs) 
You know, the name of this series is Transformed, Metamorphosis, Transformed by Truth. And what we've seen is a powerful relationship between truth and transformation. This is how God transforms us. So we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. If we want to be transformed, we have to change the way we think. Satan's greatest spiritual attack is deception. Right? We've seen that over and over in the series. But what I want you to question, what I want you to, re, uh, to, to realize today is that it's not just receiving the truth, it's responding to the truth. That it's how we respond to the truth that determines our transformation. And so the question is for you, like when the Holy Spirit speaks in your life, when he's turning up the light, are you running towards the light? Are you surrendering to the light even when it's hard? Or are you turning from that light and rationalizing your choice in such a way that's keeping you from being transformed? What we see today is unless we respond to the light, that there can be no metamorphosis. There can be no transformation. It's not just receiving light. It's responding to the light. So the question is, in your life, when the light comes, are you quick to receive it? And to respond to it? Or do you resist it, rebel, rationalize, and turn from the light because you don't like what it reveals or what it requires? You tell me how you answer that question. Honestly, I can predict with great certainty your future walk with Christ and your future transformation. This is not rocket science. Respond to the light, you'll receive more light. Reject the light, you will lose even the light you have. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, these are powerful truths we're talking about today. And we pray you to open our mind to receive them, to embrace them, and to be transformed by them. And Father, I pray that even as we go into this time of worship, even as we, we sing this song about surrender, that I'm sure for many of us here that you're already turning up the light, that we're aware there's an area of our life where we're living in rebellion. We know it. And we've been resisting you, and we know it. And the light is becoming dimmer. It's becoming easier to resist. And today you're waking us up and you're calling us back. For some of us here, it may be that while we were here today in this message, that, that you're just bringing up something new, an er, a new area of a new room of our house you want to address. For some of us here, it may be that during this message, you've been bringing up something from eight years ago, seven years ago, something we said no, and we haven't realized how much that no has impacted us. But whatever it is, Lord, we pray that you'd meet us now. You continue to meet us in this this week. And as we worship you now, as we bring you our, our tithes, our gifts, our offerings, we pray you meet us and you give us grace to help us bow the knee and say yes to the light, that we might become the light. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Would you stand with me? Let's worship.